This is Diva Marie Gregory. Welcome to Corpse Friend Radio. Ours is a podcast of the Forsaken. I am your leader, the Banshee Queen, the Dark Lady, and you are listening to Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken, the Forsaken. Welcome to episode 108 of Cops on Radio. My name is Grand Negus, and today I would like to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, 8.3 is kind of around the corner. And the second point is that in WoW Classic, we just got access to the first battlegrounds. So what that means, in my opinion, is that in both games we will see a big shift. For WoW Classic we will see the ability to get honor outside of world PvP and for retail WoW we will have new content coming and we will have a rework of the auction house coming among some other things that I'm not going to talk about here because we all know about stuff like the continuing AP creep and gear item level progression and all that stuff, so I don't need to mention that. But for Retail WoW, for me, the biggest new thing besides new content is the Auction House rework. Even bigger than the release of the new allied races, which in my opinion counts towards new content. So let's start with the auction house. We will be getting the opportunity to buy parts of stacks. That means that the price per item is being lifted up onto the pedestal of all important. When you just need 50 of an item out of a stack of 200, you can just go and just buy the 50 pieces out of the stack of 200 that is the cheapest per item stack and then the person that sells you the items will receive if only you bought your 50 items out of his stack of 200 he will receive or she will receive the gold or the currency that you paid for your 50 and they will receive the 150 remaining pieces of your stack of 200 back in the mail. You will be able to buy, say, a thousand pieces of something, herb or ore or whatnot. You will be able to enter the numerical value of a thousand and the auction house AI will go and buy you the cheapest 1000 items out of how many ever stacks there are listed as the thousand cheapest items. And if that's going to be 24 stacks and the 25th is going to take 10 out of, then so be it. You don't need to 
buy these stacks individually anymore. You just enter your desired amount, in this case a thousand, and then the game will do the rest for you. It will, as I said, buy up the how many ever stacks there are up till the thousand pieces are filled. Another new feature is the favorites feature where you can now select a item to be in your favorites list. There is a little star up top which when you click it it will show your favorites list if you are an enchanter and you don't have enough stuff to enchant and you go and buy dust or shards or whatnot you can just go and add the dust that you need on a regular basis that you are in short supply of to your favorites list and as soon as you open your AI window at least that's how it is at the moment on the PTR your favorites list will show up first and then you can again add favorite items to your list when you sell items as I said at the beginning per unit price is paramount so when you want to buy stuff with this new system stack size is irrelevant as I said that means that when you sell stuff stack size is irrelevant too so if you want to sell your excess amount of again let's stick with plants with herbs and ore if you are a tailor you have that extra amount of cloth and you have say 5,000 you want to sell and now at the moment with this current system that we have you need to enter your sell order individually you can of course select 10 times or 5 times or 20 times the, the maximum stack size and in our case we have 5000 so that means 25 times 200 stacks and that means 25 entries in the UI with the new system you go and open the sell window you enter your desired sales price per unit say 5 gold and then you enter 5,000. 5,000 pieces. That's it. That's all you do. Hit sell and it will show in the AH. It will show Grand Negus wants to sell 5,000 or one stack in this case because each order that I post is essentially one stack. That's why I referred to stacks earlier. Even though stacks technically aren't a thing. Just to make sure why does he talk about stacks when stacks are irrelevant? Well, technically, your order is one stack, regardless of how many items that order includes. It takes a lot of the clutter out of the listings, in my opinion. You're not required to scroll through pages and pages of stacks of one anymore. So, old system, 25 entries of 200. If you choose to sell them at 200, if not, even more entries in the system for the same price. With the new system, one entry, one price, 
5,000 pieces. If you choose to sell them for different prices, obviously there will be differences. You will cut them up into different stacks because again, even in this new system, you need to set the sales price differently so it will cut that up. But it really doesn't matter anymore. Where earlier it was legitimate to sell 20 items for a higher price than it was for 200 because people only needed 20, the inability to buy out of a stack, buy parts of a stack, prevented that and made it more lucrative for people to do that shuffle. Now it doesn't matter because you can just buy one piece out of the stack of 5,000 if you so desire. And that makes the shuffle of smaller size stacks for higher prices per unit irrelevant. That obviously does mess up price gouging, is that right? The inflated prices, it cuts those away. Now, for people that want to sell, where the game just goes and sells the cheapest items first, and that again has its advantages and disadvantages, but I'm not going to go into that. There are quite a few gold makers that can tell you what the advantages and disadvantages are with the new system versus the old. That's something that, uh, yeah, you can just figure out yourself if you want to. So it's much more streamlined, in my opinion, well thought through. And I really, I really like this. I think it's a genius concept. And I don't know why we haven't gotten this a long time ago. But be that as it may, it's finally coming now. And I'm so happy about this. With that, let us dive into our first segment. Today's first segment is from Noble87. And he is going to tell us about the history, the story of the Howling Fjord zone in Northrend. Here is Noble 87. Hello everyone. With the announcement of the Shadowlands being our next expansion, I figured it would be a good idea to take our zone coverage into Northrend and talk about the major story within the Howling Fjords. Quite a few interesting things regarding the afterlife and the Shadowlands, they happen right here. But first, let's go back into time and talk about the Titans and the Old Gods. It was the time in which the Old Gods had infected the world of Azeroth and plunged it into chaos with the Black Empire. The Titans, in turn, were on a mission of waking up more of their kind, bringing order to worlds in the process. And when they stumbled upon Azeroth, they discovered that it did indeed contain a slumbering Titan spirit and it was dealing with this corruption. Knowing that they couldn't just rip out the old gods and take care of them that way, it would cause far too much damage to the soul within, they decided to make their titan keepers who'd fight the war for them. To assist them with their battle and later on bring order to the planet, the keepers in turn worked on crafting their titan forged. There were Irvin, Mechanomes, Tolvir, as well as the Vrykul. After quite a bit of fighting and hard work, their mission was a success. 
the old gods were imprisoned. Order was brought to the world. The titans and the creations did all they could to give that spirit a fighting chance at life. The titans, they left the world behind and kept on searching for more of their kind. While life, it did its thing on the planets. Within their prisons though, the old gods weren't happy about being locked away. Whispers and schemes played out to work towards the liberation. Amongst them, we see the old god Yaxaran messing about with the keepers at Ulduar. Loken specifically was their target of corruption. Yaxaran played him like a fiddle, and to weaken their titan creations, they infected a titan force with something that they called the Curse of Flesh. This would make them more vulnerable to the corruption of the old gods, it literally gave them flesh. The Vrykuls, they weren't aware of this of course, all they saw was that their bodies were changing, their creators remained silent, they had to figure out all on their own what was going on. It was their king Yimmeron that decreed that the gods had abandoned them. They're mocking them, for who else but their creators would have the power to bestow such a curse. Their women are now birthing weak aberrations, not fit for Vrykul society. From now on, it would be he to lead their people into a glorious future, and one of his first orders was to get rid of any of these malformed children born amongst their people. Cast them out, slay them, murder their babies to keep their blood pure. An order that some cheered on, others amongst the Vrykul, they simply couldn't do it. Malformed and weak as they may be, they're still their blood, they're their children. In secret, they moved their kids to a mystical land far to the south, where a lost clan of Raikou was set to journey with Keeper Tyr and a whole bunch of others. They found this mystical land, and with heavy hearts, they left the beloved sons and daughters in the care of the Raikou, who inhabited this area called Tirisfal. In the ages that followed, the affected children and their offspring, they would continue degenerating into mortal beings that we now call the humans. Now this culling, this purging of the children, it didn't stop the curse of flesh amongst the Vrykul clans. They tried all that they could to get rid of it, purge themselves of this curse. Despite all of their efforts, they would remain weakened by the affliction. So eventually, they decided to place themselves in hibernation in the hopes of staying off the curse of flesh. Fast forward a few millennia, and we ourselves would venture to Northrend. As ours the Lich King, he was ready to take us on. In the Howling Fjord, we set up base, and we quickly discovered that these Vrykul, they've allied themselves to a death god the offspring of their malformed children, a human wearing the helm of domination. That's the one that they follow now, and of course, that makes them a great threat to us. But in turn, we're not defendless. Tyrion Fordring, he's already counted Arthas at Lightshope Chapel, as he sent out Darius' death knights to lure out the paladin. On this holy ground, the Lich King was at quite a disadvantage. His death knights, they were sent to the slaughter. All that was worth it to him if he could just get to Tyrion. But instead, Tyrion got to him. The corrupted Ashbringer is purified by his holy light, and Arthas is forced to retreat. He lost the loyalty of his death knights in the process. And now, a mighty weapon has been forged in a war against the Scourge. But the journey to Northrend, it's quite dangerous, and they decided to separate Tyrion from the blade. That way, if the Scourge forces detected them, if they would go for the wielder of the Ashbringer, at least, they wouldn't lose Tyrion, they wouldn't lose the leader of their crusade. It was Eris the Oathbound that was charged with his holy duty, and we find him inside the Utgard catacombs, not doing too well. With his dying breath, he tells us about his sacred duty. The sacred artifact that they had to hurl far into the den of the fallen, far below us, is now surrounded by the unmerciful deaths. be quite a challenge to retrieve it. But the blessing of the light that he bestows upon us, it keeps the undead at bay. 
Tyrion. He quite regrets letting someone else carry this burden for him. Already, they lost so many lives, and the campaign has only just begun. No longer will he hide from Arthas or his undead forces. The Silverhand is coming for Arthas, and his kingdom shall crumble beneath the weight of justice. Now, of course, with both the Alliance and the Horde partying in the same zone, partying within the Howling Fjords, you can bet that there's gonna be a bit of a faction war, a little bit of fighting each other, but mainly they focus on the threats of the zone. The Vrykul are a massive part of this, with massive harpoons, their proto-dragons, taking people captive, allied to the Scourge, they're no joke. And once the Horde earns victory over Stormwind's North fleets, they have an interesting visit from Prince Kalasev. Once a Blood Elf, they tried to hunt the Lich King down, now is reborn as a Senlane, a powerful undead vampiric being. He's in charge here of the Scourge and Vrykul forces, and he makes the Forsaken quite the offer. His master, the Lich King, could wipe them all out in an instant, if he so desired. But perhaps they're smart enough to see that Sylvanas' dreams of revenge, that they're foolish. Power beyond their imagination it awaits them. All they have to do is return to the Scourge embrace. And the answer quickly follows with a volley of arrows aimed at the Blood Prince. He quickly hides behind his Vrykul forces that take the blow for him. The souls of our archers, they're drained out of them. And Kalasev, he teleports back to his base of operations. Back to Utgard Keep. This elf prince thinks he could come into our town. Insult our queen. Kill our men and get away with it? He thinks we're just gonna stand by while the hordes of Utgard build up to launch an attack? Nah, 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 nah. Not in a million years. Now, Utgard, it was long thought to be abandoned. A relic of a lost civilization amongst the central cliffs of the Howling Fjords. Yet in the recent days, something, mainly the Lich King's forces, they roused the fortress slumbering residents, the Vrykul, into a frenzy. Inside, we gather their weaponry to figure out the secrets behind the weapons that they use. And of course, we take on the bosses, starting with Prince Kalasev. Your blood is mine! The Lich King deployed Kalasev to Utgard Keep in the hopes of harnessing the Vrykul's potential for destruction. Upon arriving, the ambassador, he found a people who were more than eager to assist the Scourge. The Keep has proved to be an excellent staging point for terrorizing the Howling Fjords, and Kalasev has no intention of losing it to these insolent trespassers. And despite his defeat here, Kalasev would return for the Blood Prince Council in Icecrown Citadel, where he stood to serve his Blood Queen Lanafell and of course the Lich King. I join the night. Scarvald and Dalron, their magic and might working together. It's Vrykul tradition to make unlikely partners work together like this. Some say it's to allow divergent abilities to complement each other. Others, they say it's simply for the amusement of King Ymiron. Regardless, Scarvald and Dalron are a perfect example of this custom. Between a Vrykul's brawn and a human's necromantic arts, they will punish those who meddle with the Scourge. Not over yet. A warrior's death. And then the leader here, that would be Ingvar the Plunderer, whose brute strength is legendary even amongst the Vrykul. Rumor has it that he once bested King Ymiron in a brawl. The truth of it is unknown, but purveyors of that tale, they usually don't live for retelling. Ingvar has promised the Lich King that he'll use all measures of brutality to hold the keep, a promise that he dares not to break. Ingvar! Your pathetic failure will serve as a warning to all! You are damned! Arise and carry out the master's will! And return! A second chance to curb your skull! What's happening here is pretty cool, but to explain it proper, we'll have to go back to those Titan Keepers. 
You see, when the Titans were finished and made ready to leave the planets, they decided to make Keeper Odin the prime designate. He was supposed to be their leader, but when Keeper Tyr came up with the idea of having more creatures to help safeguard the world, the idea of creating the dragon aspects, Odin, he wasn't down with the plan. He was against it. So when the other Keepers, they didn't listen to him, they went on with their plans anyways. He decided to make his own defense army with Valajar and Raikul. With the aid of the sorceress Helia, they took a piece of Ulduar and lifted it into the sky. The Halls of Valor, it welcomed any Vrykul who died a worthy death in battle to come into their halls. Come back as a Valajar and stand with the mighty Odin in defense of the world. The only problem was that Odin, he didn't exactly have the power to drag the spirits from the Shadowlands, to drag them back from the afterlife. He needed beings, knowledge and power to make that happen. So a powerful ritual was performed, one in which he sacrificed one of his eyes to peer into the Shadowlands, and there it was where he found his answer. The idea, these beings, these so-called Velkir, they would be his transports to carry these worthy souls up to his halls. Not turning a Vrykul into a Velkir, it wasn't exactly a job that people were down for. It was meant to be a cursed life, to become a phantom being. Hell yeah, she couldn't just sit by and have Odin force the job upon someone. They ended up in a heated argument, in which the two of them nearly came to blows. But in the end, Helia, she warned Odin that she would return the halls of Vela to Ulduar if he did not change his mind. With those words, Odin had found his first victim. He saw Helia as a threat to his plans and to the world, so he decided to strike out. He shattered her physical form and twisted her spirits into the first of the Valkyr. Now unable to disobey his orders, Helia went about transforming more unwilling Vrykul into the first of Odin's Valkyrs, and for ages they were the ones to bring these souls of heroic Vrykul back to the halls of Valor. A little while later, we would see Loken play his part again. Yuxeron's corruption, it made him see the other keepers as his enemies, so he approached Helia with a deal. He would set her free from Odin's control, and in exchange she would use her powers to lock Odin and all those who followed him away within the halls of Valor. Now still enraged about what Odin had done to her, Helia gladly accepted the deal. After locking Odin and his Valajar away, she then set out to create her own domain, which we know as Helheim. Bound to Azor's great seas, it would act as a final destination for many of the Vrykul spirits after death. Yet the darkness that had made a home in Helia's heart, it transformed her created realm into a place of nightmare and shadow. The souls of the dead Vrykul who arrived here at Helheim, they found themselves turned into the vengeful beings called Kvaldir. So Odin and Helia, they have their Valajar and their Kvaldir. And the Valkyr that we see created here, they're inspired by the ones, by the ideas that Odin gleamed from gazing into the Shadowlands. Then the Lich King, he followed suit and was inspired by Odin's Valkyr. He tried to create his own, but the task proved difficult even for him. After several missteps, he finally succeeded. The Valkyr greatly enhanced his ability to control the dark powers of undeath. As we can see here, a similar thing is going on with the promise that Odin had made to the Vrykul. Those that proved themselves worthy to the Lich King, they're granted the honor of becoming Yimmerjar, elite warriors amongst the Lich King army. And those that find themselves unworthy, like Ingvar, they're turned into the Vargul. No! I can do better! I can! While higher up in Utgard, we find Utgard Pinnacle, where now King Yimmeran sits on his throne. During our adventure in the zone, we actually run into his wife, Queen Angerbode, who's trying to wake up her hubby from his long slumber to stand with them against these invaders. We enter her life, but before we can finish the king as well, the Lich King shows up to teleport him away to the pinnacle. Not yet, Yimmeron. I have other plans for you. 
you will serve me better within Utgard Pinnacle. And if these insects survive to find you again, you will get the chance to avenge your wife. And we do survive to take on a challenge inside the pinnacle. First up is Svala Sorrowgrave, who has distinguished herself as Ingvar's lieutenant, leading perilous scouting missions into Horde and Alliance outposts. It was she who discovered the enemy's plans to invade Utgard, which gave the Lich King time to prepare, guiding others of her kind into the dark embrace of the Scourge. For her service, she is rewarded. Arise, and forever be known as Svala Sorrowgrave. The sensation is beyond my imagining. I am yours to command, my king. Now they say rewards, but as we'll learn later on, being a Valkyr in Serve the Lich King, it isn't that great. Very similar to how Odin made it all look like becoming a Valkyr was some kind of great honor. These Vraiku, they're fooled in the same way. Anna held the caller, for example, the one who showed up to transform Ingar. She would later enter the deal with Sylvanas Windrunner. In order to be free of Bolvar's control, they would take the Bench's Queen's place in Hell, and in turn, she would tie herself to these nine Valkyr and take them away. But back to this moment, despite trying to sacrifice us, Svala is taken down. Next up is Gortak Pelhoof, a trophy held by Ymiron to remind all that even the most savage beasts, they're nothing but mere decorations for the Vraiku Halls. What mongrels dare intrude here? Look alive, my brothers! A feast for the one that brings me their heads! Skadi the Roofless has us run through a gauntlet to then blast him down from the sky with harpoons dropped by his comrades. The Vraiko, they assign nicknames based on accomplishments. For example, cleaning a Drakari bloodline or decapitating a Tonka, it might garner the appellation of dutiful, but it takes a true act of depravity to be called Roofless. He earned this title long ago for relentlessly hunting down Vraiko who sheltered their malformed infants. The parents who refused to murder the offspring regardless of the orders of their king, truly a monster that deserves his death. Uh, you call that an attack? I'll show uh, and finally, there's proud King Ymiron, who's ruled the northern wastes until the Vraiko's long slumber. It relegated him into insignificance. He regained consciousness, only to find that his wife has been murdered, his lands besieged by enemies. He has caused off his mortality and demands vengeance, eager to show the terrible resolve of an awakened giant. During his fights, he'll actually call upon the spirits of former Vraiko kings to lend them their strength in the battle. But not even their combined might is enough to hold their ground against the heroes of Azeroth. What awaits me now? The dark bargain that he had made with the Lich King. It meant that the halls of Valor, they would be closed for poor Ymiron. His death, it landed him as the fallen king, waiting in purgatory on the shores of the Ma of Souls. Quite a hellish afterlife. But not his ultimate fate. He will become a follower for warriors in the Legion Order Hall, those halls of valor where they can poke the king until he can't take no more. Why couldn't you let me die? Curse you! Curse your mother! I will make your head down, down your throat! You holding himself with you under the ground! So, a big section of the zone that's all about dealing with the Scourge, the Lich King, and their Vraiko allies. Preparations for the war campaign, for going deeper into Norfrens, they're also being made. None might be more motivated to take out Arthas than Sylvanas and the Forsaken. 
You may remember from Warcraft 3 how the city of Silvermoon, it was sacked and Sylvanas raised as a banshee. The poor people of Lordaeron, they were turned to the undead and able to regain control. They found a home with Sylvanas in a world that didn't want them. An alliance of convenience with the Horde, that has led them on this path to Northrend. But to take down Arthas, it's going to require all that they have. There's no time for remorse or honor. They will do everything that it takes to get the job done. Which is why we help out the Royal Apothecary Society with developing the best plague possible. One that doesn't resurrect the fallen back into undead, as happened to the Forsaken themselves. But one that definitely hurts both the living and the undead. Materials are gathered, experiments are performed. Even the Alliance, despite condemning the Forsaken as being so very evil, they get their hands on the stuff. Our efforts here are so successful that we see events like the Rothgate go down later down the line. Still a bit up in the air if this is actually what Sylvanas wanted to happen. A seeming betrayal that kicked her out of her own city and meant the loss of thousands of Horde and Alliance soldiers. But we definitely did injure Arthas a little bit. Maybe that makes it worth it. Not to mention that the plague, it played its part even further. Like Southshore, Gilneas or even the battle at Lordaeron. All of that helped develop right here by the Royal Apothecary Society. Meanwhile, on the Alliance side, we find the Explorers League excavating the land finding out more about the ancestry. But digging up things in Northrend, it's a little bit dangerous, considering that the old god Yaxaron, he's said to be as large as the continent itself. It's blood, serenite, it's popped up all over the place. Some of the excavators, they've gone quite mad with the whispers assault to their minds. I think it's clear by now that Loken, he is no longer an ally to the world. He's in the grasp of Yaxaron, and he wants the final defense of Ulduar to fall away so that his master can go free. That's what we see with the Iron Dwarves in the area, similar constructs as the Vraiku. They're informed by the Master that the brothers in the Storm Peaks, they're working at a frenzied pace. Soon, Father will be freed, Father being Daddy Yaxaran. The brothers of the North, they've subjugated the Stone Behemoths and set them on a path to Ulduar. Soon, the remaining defenses of the Pantheon, they will be neutralized. Now Loken, he is a little bit worried about the fissures, the excavation sites that have opened up. The earth, it hears and sees what they do, and will continue to interfere with the efforts if the way is not closed. The earth itself is rising up to try and stop their plans. They must be buried, they must be silenced, their master demands it. Bow down before the god of death! If you're curious about Locus Betrayal and the effects of Yaxaran and Ulduar, I'll put up a link to a more detailed video in the description, probably on screen as well. Now there are a couple of more side stories that this zone holds, like meeting the Tonka, partying with the Tusker and the Pirates, helping out the Alpha Wolf and hanging out with chill nymphs, but this is the major story of the Howling Fjords. I really think that the story of the Tusker should definitely go on the planning. But for now, thank you very much for watching everyone. By all means, let me know which zone you'd like me to cover next. I've personally been thinking about something in the direction of the Forsaken starting area, but I'll leave the choice up to you. You could all subscribe if you like my videos, leave a like if you enjoyed this one, and until next time, see ya! Hello, it's Sol with another video. So today I'm going to help guide you through preparing for patch 8.3. Killer intro, I know, so let's just get started. Hopefully you're not looking at this guide day one of the patch, you're looking at this like 
like right now, several weeks earlier. Right now, we're in the middle of Blizzard's 15-year anniversary event that's going to, uh, it's going to help you level up extremely fast by using this Revenge of Korok event. So if you have a bunch of 110 alts that are gathering dust, you can just jump right into this Altrak Valley time walking event throughout the month of December and then level them up in only a few hours. Just be sure to use experience boosting items like the Draft of 10 Lands, uh, Heirlooms, and the Anniversary buff. You'll want to deck out your alts with as much benthic gear as you can afford. Now granted, there is some powerful catch-up gear in 8.3. World Quest rewards will scale as high as 445, that's normal raid gear. And there are account-wide tokens that grant a gear uh, that has an item level of 410 or 415 for Azrite pieces. The problem is that, at least for my testing, the tokens don't drop very often. So your undergeared characters are going to have a pretty difficult time in outdoor content. It really doesn't mess around. Basically, what I'm saying is that if you have really crap alts, then don't count on easily showering them with this Black Empire gear. You'll do yourself a big favor by doing enough Najatar stuff on your alts to buy a few pieces using the pearls that you can easily get from the introduction, and whatever your main can spare, it's just plain faster. Like in patch 8.2, it's probably going to be a good idea to hoard artifact power once again. And here's why. When 8.2 launched, we were given four weeks worth of artifact knowledge, which means that for those of us who are going to be at neck level 70 when patch 8.3 launches, it's going to cost approximately 23,000 artifact power to get it to neck level 71, which is going to get you a nice little stamina boost. Level 75 is when you get to unlock your fourth essence slot, which for many ought to be an upgrade worth working towards. This will mean it's going to be a good idea to once again bank Paragon rewards like in 8.2. Keep in mind though that you're only going to get AP from turning in the Paragon quest and not from opening the chest from turning in said quest. Use the Paragon reputation add-on to track your progress. You can effectively bank two turn-ins per reputation, or 19,999 rep. So here's what you do. On day one of the patch, go to each faction's respective zone, turn in the Paragon reward, then do one more world quest and get the second Paragon reward. In total, this is going to get you up to 35,000 AP under the current system, which will get you well past neck level 71. Also, like in previous patches, make sure you have uh, the Mythic Weekly chest, the PvP chest, or Island Treasure Mission ready to turn in for additional boosts. But keep in mind that there are risks to this method, because something could change before the patch that throws a wrench in this whole strategy. Speaking of islands, you can hoard doubloons, because a new vendor will appear that lets you basically buy island loot boxes. It's a doubloon dump, if you've already spent your doubloons on like everything else possible. These boxes basically let you pay for an instant run. The items on this vendor rotate every week, so if you're targeting something specific, just hoard doubloons until you see the box that you want to buy, and you can buy multiple. Goblin and Wargan Heritage Armor is going to be available in the patch. The only thing you need to do is make sure that you are exalted with the Bilgewater Cartel or Gilneas. Volpira and Mechanomes will be available as allied races in Patch 8.3. To get them, you'll need to have reached Exalted Reputation and complete the major quest lines for the respective faction. So for the Volpira, that's to complete the zone. For the Mechanomes, that's to complete the zone quest line, including defeating King Mechagon. 
keep in mind that Operation Mechagon will also be added as a heroic dungeon, so it's a safe guess that defeating him on heroic will count towards the allied race requirement too. You do not need Pathfinders to fly around in 8.3 content, woohoo! You are going to be roaming around Pandaria and Uldum. However, if you're the type who doesn't want to fly for roleplay reasons, you're going to need some help in Uldum because at least one of the bosses you encounter at the end of completing daily content does require flying or at least a, a summon onto this really high up platform. But basically, if you already can fly in Pandaria and Azeroth, then you're good. New profession items are coming in 8.3, but most of them are just going to use existing materials, including those from Najatar. It's the typical collection with like new Vantis runes, a new alchemist stone, high level BOPs, and you know, stuff like that. So hang on to a few materials or stock up on materials to eventually sell. This is just a prediction, but I think the biggest winners of this patch when it comes to resources is going to be the fishing community. New cooking recipes will require materials from Uldum and the Eternal Blossoms. There's meat that anyone can pick up, but there are two kinds of fish, the Malformed Nasher and the Aberrant Voidfin, I think that's how it's pronounced. This food will make it easier to run horrific visions, which is going to be a big part of 8.3 progression. Pet battles will once again play a small part in the reputation game in this patch. Now it's too early to make a complete guide, but I will provide links to all eight of the pet battle world quests in Uldum or Old Doom and the Veil. That way you can refer back to them for guides or import scripts if you happen to use the rematch add-on. And that about wraps things up. If there's anything that I missed, please, oh please, leave a comment below. After all, we're all just trying to help each other out. Please like the video if you enjoyed yourself and subscribe for more of this and all things Warcraft. We'll see you next time. But until then, stay safe, stay happy, and stay breezy. So there you have some more things to help you prepare for 8.3 from Soul So Breezy. Thank you, Soul. As for what I said at the beginning with that other part, what I quickly would like to talk about, and that is the honor gain through Battlegrounds now in WoW Classic. As of this week, last week, I can't remember, last week I think, Warsong Gulch and Alterock Valley have opened on the WoW Classic servers. So you can go and farm honor by doing Battleground. People say that that killed the open world PvP, but I don't really think so. It has some validity to it, but still open world PvP and Battleground PvP are two totally different pair of shoes, in my opinion. And as we all know, very rarely do people only own one pair of shoes. You just go with what you feel most comfortable with. And not everyone owns the same type of shoe. So that's why with like everything else, in the world there is variety and that's good so in my opinion the community the pvp community should not overdo it with their criticism you can go and do whatever you want variety is good in my opinion so they opened warsong gulch and Alterock valley ahead of time ahead of schedule so i'm not sure how it's going to change the PvP servers. But one thing is for sure, if you play on a PvE server and you want to do PvP, it is a 
safe way to do it. And it's a much more focused way to do it than to trick people that don't want to do PvP necessarily to do so by uh, flagging yourself and have them hit you and whatnot. Because in Classic, you still have the accidental hit flagging mechanic that they've taken out in retail. My thoughts on PvP are, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that it has its role in the game. It has its spot in the game. Am I a person that continuously wants to do PvP? No, because I'm just not good enough a player to survive stuff like that. And I don't want to be ganked. I want to do my things that I want to do in the open world without someone sneaking up on me and uh, killing me over and over again. If people were disciplined enough, as I am, I, I'm, I must say, I'm, I'm going by a rule, disciplining myself, saying if there is a opposition player when I'm in PvP, and they want to kill me, then by all means, go ahead, kill me. But leave it at that. Don't gank me, don't corpse camp me. You've beaten me once, I might go and uh, go for a rematch, but that's it. At the latest, after the second duel, so to speak, that should be it. I mean, if you are in a group that battles for, for some objective then by all means kill people over and over again but if it's a one-on-one -on -one thing you show me that you can beat me i've shown you that i can beat you whatever and i won't go and and kill you over and over again i've i've, I've shown you what i can do you show me what you can do and that's it let's go our separate ways and okay for people that don't have that discipline or the that don't want to do that go into the battlegrounds kill the same person over and over and over again that's how i view the pvp one-on-one -on -one thing if the rules are different if there is a server where corpse camping is a thing where you can go and kill a level two person as a level 120 over and over and over again and not let them get anywhere? Sure, if those are the rules, then so be it. But I doubt that. I really doubt that. PvP is always a thing that, how do I put this, requires two people to be on the same level, in my opinion, thought-wise. We shouldn't think of it as, oh, I'm the god, I'm the PvP god, and that's why I can go and gank this little player or do whatever to, to someone else just because I can. Just because I can isn't a good victory reason, in my opinion. But that's probably just me, and uh, yeah. I'm rambling. I just wanted to offer my my opinion. With that said, next up we have Charm with her song, her newest song, Don't Cry, Kelderai. And then we have our next segment by Matt Season Show. 
and he is going to give us his guide to WoW Classics version of Warsong Gulch. Don't cry, Calderai, not in front of me. Who cut your tears falling for a tree? Ooh, falling for a tree. Ooh. Don't cry, Calderai, don't leave it this way. Your tears can extinguish the fire in the leaves. We're leaving, I swear to Elu Now fury is freezing, yeah This was our home, our home for all seasons So come on, let's go We'll go to the city and meet with the king We'll forge an alliance, the broken will sing Yes, we'll take our home back and everything Please don't cry, no tears now, what good will that bring? Don't cry, guys, what's up, Mad Season here, back with another video for you. Blizzard recently announced that we're getting the two battlegrounds attached to Phase 3, which are the Warsun Gulch and Altric Valley, a bit earlier than originally planned. While Phase 3 is said to be released sometime in early 2020, these battlegrounds have been confirmed for the week of December 10th, which people are complaining about, but it actually matches the original release more accurately, as these battlegrounds were released in Patch 1.5 on June 7th of 2005, whereas the Blackwing Lair was one month later in patch 1.6 in July 12th of the same year. I thought it was timely to make a full guide for each of these battlegrounds, starting with Warsun Gulch and going into the basic stuff such as how to join, rewards, and basic objectives, but also go into the more advanced stuff such as team composition, differences between the classic and current versions, and general strategies and tips to give you an edge over your opponents. 
Most people have probably played the Capture the Flag game mode in one form or another. It's in nearly every FPS game in existence. Or for those who leave your basements, you could even play it in real life. The premise is simple. Force your way into the enemy's base, grab their flag, and bring it back to yours. In the case of World of Warcraft Classic, you must have your flag safely secured inside your base to score a point, and the first to three points wins. Okay, video over. I hope you found it helpful. Like it if you liked it. Alright, just kidding, but before we get into the actual battleground, let's cover the basics first. To queue up for it, you have to find a Battlemaster in any major city. Just ask a guard for their specific location, and the ones you're looking for for the Alliance are the Silverwing Sentinel Battlemasters, and for the Horde, it's the Warsong Outriders. These are also reputations tied to the battlegrounds. It's a 10 vs 10 fight, so you can queue up with 9 other group members if you wish, and note that even lower level players can join in on the fun. They're split in the following brackets. Alternatively, you can queue up at the actual instance portal, which is located right here in Ashenvale for the Alliance, and right here in the Barrens for the Horde. A fun fact for you is that when these were released, you had to use these portals to queue up. It was only in patch 1.6, one month later, is when they added these Battlemasters, which was a huge quality of life improvement. You still have the need to go here though, as it's where the vendors are located for these reputations. The rewards are quite good, depending on the class. They require gold to buy, and are locked with reputation. The highlights are the epic bracers and pans, which you get at the exalted level. There are also a selection of blues, which can be handy depending on your gear level. More so for levelers, I think, because you can get them in various ranges. So those are the basics covered. Let's next get into the actual battleground. Here's the layout of the map. Both teams start in their respective bases, Alliance in the north and Horde in the south. And just really quickly, going over the actual base architecture first, they're both pretty much the same in functionality. For each area, on the upper left of the screen, I'll have the common nomenclature displayed. On the bottom we have tunnels, which split off into two paths, one into the flag room, and the other onto the roof overlooking the flag room. To the left of each tunnel, and up the ridge, is the enemy graveyard. This is where everyone respawns. And to the right of the tunnel is what's called the ramp just a ramp to the upper level of the base. Going straight leads to the enemy graveyard, and to the right lies two doors, both leading to the enemy flag room, with stairs connecting them on the inside. There are a selection of buffs that spawn throughout the map that you should know about. Right near the ramps are huts that have the berserker buff, which increase your damage dealt by 30% and damage taken by 10% for one minute. And just below the graveyards are the leaves, which over time replenish both your health and mana. A popular spot for rogues to camp, waiting for desperate players looking for a heal. And in each tunnel are the speed boots, which for 10 seconds increase your movement speed by 100%. The center is where most of the action is though. It's a fairly open layout with some tree stumps here and there to serve as cover from enemy eyes. It's here typically where your flag carrier sees the most action and your team has to be on the ball to get them through safely. That's the basic gist of things though. You keep your flag, and you get the enemies. But let's go into the details, starting with the differences between current and classic, since I'm sure many of you have gotten used to it. The first and biggest difference is that flag carriers no longer get the focused assault debuff 
which increases damage taken and limits movement speed. As you may know, in current, the longer a flag carrier holds the flag, the more stacks they get. This was done to limit the duration of matches and get things moving along. This is not present in the classic version of Warsong Gulch. And also absent is the timer. In current, each match is limited to 15 minutes, where the team with the most points, or in the case of an even score, the team who scored last, is labeled the victor. So just due to these two features not being implemented, as you can imagine, games can go on for hours if both teams are stubborn enough. Next, let's cover team compositions. There are 9 classes in Classic, each bringing something unique to the table for this game mode, and some more than others. So just a bit of background of my PvP experience first to give this some perspective. I played the original game way back in the day, and I had a pretty good crew for Warsong. Not the best, but we went pretty consistently. I stopped at rank 10, which is pretty casual most would say, at least in comparison to rank 14, but it was enough for me and we still did pretty good. I think the best way to do this is to just have a small commentary on each class and what unique things that they bring to the table for the battleground to help you decide on a team. I'll also share my personal team from way back when for a basic example of what you might be looking for and explain my reasoning as well. Our team composition was something like this. Now this wasn't exact, and sometimes we'd just take what we could get, but this is generally what we would shoot for. I was the rogue back then, and I was typically tasked with defending the flag room, and if I failed at that, of course getting the flag back. They're the best one-on-one -on -one class I think, and with all of their stuns, blinds, and the ability to completely lock down anyone, you should have no trouble killing a single druid, or whatever comes into your flag room. And they're just good at getting the flag back in general. You pick up a Berserker buff, and you try to give an unsuspecting carrier in the chaos of a teamfight, or if they're silly enough to leave them alone. Priests are pretty self-explanatory. Disciplined priests are just great healers, and Shadow pumps out the damage. They can dispel magic effects off of enemies, including the free action potion, which is very important. The AoE fear is nice to have, and Mind Vision is a great way to get intel on the enemy flag carrier's position and how many guards they have. It's vital to have at least one priest on the team. And hunters are just nice to have around, as they provide steady range damage and excel at chasing down flag carriers. They can also defend very well with their slowing traps and flares to unveil stealthers. The druid is probably the most important class. They're the best flag carriers hands down, with their ability to shapeshift out of slows. They handle polymorph insanely well. You can't sap them outside of human form. They're just insanely fast and tanky while in bear form as well. Every single team is going to want a druid, and they have the most important job of running flags back to base. We ran with two paladins for heals and blessings. The ability to wear plate makes them durable healers, and they have great support buffs, and blessing of freedom keeps your allies from getting rooted or slowed. Of course, anything that counters slowing effects are going to have an enormous value in a capture the flag setting. Their bubble is amazing, just a great support class to have, which is why we had two of them. I guess if you're Horde, you'd want to go with two shamans maybe. I think they're equally as good, if not better, with their ability to purge off magic effects like freedom or free action potion, grounding totem to stop crowd control effects, tremor to keep fear off of everyone, and wind fury of course for that burst damage. I think you definitely want one as restoration, and I'd say one elemental since they're so bursty which is of course pretty valuable and capture the flag. And it's also good to have a warrior on the team. 
preferably arm spec for mortal strike. This is one of the few ways of reducing healing taken in classic, so your job is going to be keeping this on the flag carrier, and also just being in the middle of everything and big team fights. Warriors are the best class with pocket healers, so you never want to venture far from the team. Stick with the group and win those team battles. Mages are also vital as they provide amazing crowd control. Sheep, an insane amount of roots and slows, and extreme damage. They're vital for group battles. The spec for our team varied. I think most people want frost mages as they have that added control, but we had good success with the fire mage, also known as a 3 minute mage, just grabbing berserking when it was up and pyroblasting a healer or flag carrier. And lastly is the warlock. Not only do they have great crowd control with fear, which is one of the few CC effects in the entire game that doesn't break immediately on damage, but they also have some pretty good damage. The Curse of Tongues to slow and harass casters, Soul Stone for that extra life, Hellstones to heal everyone, just an all-around handy class to have, and a good addition to any composition. Ours was typically Soul Link for the added defense, but I think all three specs would do well in Warsong. As for the basic strategy, your goal here is to assert control over the middle of the map. You probably heard it before. If you control middle, you win, which is true in most scenarios, but it's not that simple. It depends on your composition and how many defenders the enemy has, if any. Ideally, you want to stick together and control the middle, sending only your druid into an undefended or low defended flag room, and keep the middle clear for an easy cap. The entire goal here is to stick together, and at the same time, try and keep the enemy split up. If some get by you, intercept their backup so you keep them separated across the map. The death of a Warsong match always is losing middle, and then everyone just kind of wanders around doing their own thing. Try and keep relatively close to each other, and if you get wiped, group up again and give it another go to try to turn the tide. In the case of both teams holding each other's flag, the best place to post up without cheating is the roof. For each base, there's just one pretty small entrance, so it's easily defendable. Flares to keep rogues out, hunter traps, mage AoE slows, and so on. And if things go awry, you can simply jump down, and the graveyard is just outside. Communicate the global rest timer to your flag carrier to let them know when it's a good time to jump down. Ideally, he or she reaches the graveyard as you all resurrect, so you can finish off a probably weak and low mana team. Getting the flag back is of course dependent on many factors, including the number of defenders, classes, and so on. There's no real way to give you a one-size-fits-all guide for this. Just group up, and maybe grab a berserk buff or two, preferably on a rogue, elemental shaman, or three-minute mage, and try to get it back. Of course, communicating with your flag carrier when you're about to return it so he or she can get into position. Some tips for controlling middle, I guess, is like I said, try to keep the enemy split up. Ideally, you want to get them into a situation where only half of them are alive at any given moment, like killing the fresh spawns as soon as they drop down from your graveyard, for instance. Good teams won't do this, they'll group up, but I've played Alliance enough to know what not to do, and splitting up the enemy team is going to be your best bet. And at the same time, communicate the timer with your team, if they know that it's 20 seconds until resurrection, instead of fighting a feudal skirmish in the middle, they can just die and you can regroup much faster. At the end of the day, the key to winning is to have good composition and know how to win big team fights. Be organized with your crowd control, 
focus targets down, protect your healers. This is going to go further than anything else I can tell you. There are a couple of exploits that you should know about. I'm not going to show them to you, but it is possible to get to spots where the enemy can't reach you. Right above the flag cap is one, and another is behind it through the wall. You'll just wait for the eventual return and jump right through it. Obviously, this isn't in the spirit of competitive play and you shouldn't do it, but just be aware of it as there most certainly will be people cheating. Back in the day, you could get reported for it, and I venture it's the same for the re-release. And consumes and engineer are going to be vital, of course. Like I said in my rank 14 guide, this is before the time of hyperbalance, and you can go into any battleground with flasks, grenades, sapper charges, free action potions, healing potions, whatever. Anything that you can use in the world, you can use in a battleground, so have at it. It can be expensive, but they make a huge difference. Free action potions are going to be a must for your flag carrier, and like I said, you can dispel it off as it is a magic effect, so make sure that you do that on enemy flag carriers. And one last thing to go out on is to keep your cool. We're all for being competitive and all, but what kills a team aren't necessarily losses, more so it's your reaction to them. If you're miserable to play with if you have a bad night, chances are your team isn't going to last. Especially if you're on the rank 14 grind, chances are you're going to be interacting with the same people 18 hours a day for 3 months. But that's about it. Those are the basics of the Warsong Gulch, some fundamental strategies, and we talked a bit about compositions and some various tips and tricks. I don't pretend to be a hardcore expert, but this is what worked for me and my team all those years ago, so I hope you picked up some useful information from this to help you with your time in the battleground. If you enjoyed the video, I do plan on doing the same thing for the Arathi Basin and Altric Valley, so keep an eye out for those videos as well. Like it if you liked it, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace. Farewell for now, mortals. We hope you enjoyed today's video. See you again soon. That was Mad Season Show with his guide to Warsong Gulch in the classic World of Warcraft. Thank you very much. And now that we are at the end of episode 108, I would like to thank all the contributors of today's episode, which are Noble87, Soul So Breezy, Charm, and Mad Season Show. I would also like to thank Diva Marie for her interview last year that provided us with the intro that you heard. It's not a given that actors do this. It's nice if they do. It's by no means a given. So I would again like to thank all of my interview guests that I've been able to talk to so far. And I hope that I'm going to be able to talk to some more people next year. With that said, today's episode is the last one before the Christmas episode in two weeks, so the second to last of this year. I would like to take this time to thank all the listeners. I am trying to 
incorporate a little more of myself into the show. I think that that might not be the worst thing, having some individuality, having some stuff that is not pre-recorded, not that I want to take away from the content of the contributors. Having some quote-unquote original stuff in the shows is maybe not the worst idea. With that, thank you very much for downloading. Thank you very much for listening. Have a nice couple of weeks. Bye, everyone. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Cops Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at copsrunradiomail at gmail.com or on Twitter at copsrunradio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash copsrunradio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com, along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.